everyone, and welcome to Talking Good. I'm your host, Britt Hotailing. Today, we are joined by a dear friend and a person I'm truly honored to know, Cosby Gibson. Cosby is an award-winning singer-songwriter and performer located in New York State. She's also the founder and leader of the Flying Song Garden, a nonprofit music performance project working with 22 central New York musicians that bring song and festivity to communities in hardship from occurrences such as natural disaster, worksite closures, and other catastrophes. Cosby, thank you so much for making time today to talk some good with me. Thank you for having me, Brett. It's always such a pleasure to see you. What do you do currently, and does it reflect what initially drew you into the field of philanthropy and giving back? Well, I, as you say, I'm a full-time musician, and when I first started playing, I just noticed that being on stage by myself, just all for profit, there was something really empty about it, and it concerned me because I thought, well, oh, is this going to stop me from proceeding? And uh, so I got in, started getting involved in uh, doing free shows, uh, benefit shows, and uh, some philanthropy projects, like you said, the Flying Song Garden. And I noticed that it really helped me a lot. That's awesome. You know, I'm curious, as a touring musician and having this really, this really important project with the Flying Song Garden, how did that work through COVID? Did you find that you had a difficult time organizing events or how did that work? Yeah, it, it was shut down. Oh, and it was as a matter of fact, I mean, I personally was shut down also. I mean, I, I didn't even play my guitar for about a year. I'm I'm very much you know, that fight or flight thing. I'm mm-hmm. very much like flight and freeze. And I was pretty much glued to the media. So the Flying Song Garden uh, took a rest for those for about two years, actually. Oh, wow. And kind of backtracking to my first question, I'm wondering, did you come from a philanthropic household, so to speak? Did you grow up with a lot of examples of giving back to the community around you? I, uh, some relatives did. I think mostly uh, it was a very open-minded household. We're interested in cultural, different cultures and um, issues. There was always, uh, my, you know, my mother was always watching uh uh, reports about the world and, and the news and things like that. And they were concerned about it. We always had a copy of a newspaper in the house. So I was aware of the issues. And I think that's a really important thing. I, I, I think also personally seeing things bad happening, it makes you want to help. I think there's a lot of truth to that. I think it's interesting to hear people's first impressions of philanthropy in the public sector, because they're also different, right? I personally don't remember growing up in a particularly philanthropic household. We were taught generally that we should help other people, but the concept of philanthropy still feels relatively new in some ways. Yeah, I think I think that it's so easy to be have a blind eye to issues because maybe you go to work, maybe you go to school, maybe you go to the supermarket, and you're kind of going the same places, and you might not necessarily go to places that are struggling. And I and I think then and you think well there's no, what's wrong there's nothing wrong everything's fine mm-hmm. and and really you know on, on the other side of town it's not fine. You know what else is interesting too is I I find that the different subsectors have very different experiences right so the example you just gave of the other side of town not being fine so to speak that's a really good example of something that we can see and we can experience and. I think what's interesting about the arts and humanities subsector is it seems a little bit harder for people to feel like it's accessible to them in some ways. And I'm wondering what your experience with that is. Yes, definitely. Um, I think like just the word philanthropy, you immediately maybe think of a foundation or someone has given a lot of money to a museum or something like that. 
And that's what I love about online fundraisers. Mm -hmm. These go like GoFundMe, where you just, if you just give a dollar, you know, the crowdfunding, if you just give a dollar or five dollars, well, if you have a hundred people giving one dollar, that's a hundred dollars. And most people have one dollar to give and you give your one dollar and so does everybody else. And uh, so that uh, yeah. I do think that you're right, that it's associated with wealth, with having a lot of extra money. I think that's really interesting, your experience with crowdfunding, because it does make things feel a little bit less intimidating, right? I shared a story recently where I got a free ticket to go see a show and I got there and I found that I couldn't afford the parking. It did work out in the end, but I wonder how, you know, arts can feel maybe a little bit more accessible to people. And I think you've done a really excellent job with that, you know, through your work with the Flying Song Garden. Oh, thank you. Um, I, I know what you're saying, like, uh, especially with the ticket prices nowadays, concerts being a thousand dollars a ticket or whatever. Yeah. And if you if you are if you are living tight with a tight budget, you, you might not even have an extra two dollars. That two dollars might be going to your groceries. You know, you really can't spare anything. So um I, I do feel that there are places that are, are aware of that and are giving free uh, opportunities, free concerts, free um, library. A lot of libraries will have free craft sessions or free uh, storytelling or something like that. So I think you can, if you're, you would have to be a little creative, but you could, you could uh, live a life of just going to the free events. And um, I think that's, that's really important. I think what's really interesting about creators nowadays, and perhaps to some extent this might apply to you as well, is the use of these different platforms like Patreon and YouTube and building a, a real platform for yourself. And that's kind of based on the same concept of crowdfunding, right? Yes. And I, I have a Patreon page and that is, uh, uh, using the word patron is like what you're saying. It is the same thing as using the word philanthropy. When someone says patron, they're like, oh, I can't be a patron. And, but uh, it is a crowdfunding, but if you also, you can sort of change the words sometimes. You can say, well, would you like to subscribe to my work or would you like to support my work or something like that? Um, I think that in this day and age with the internet, the whole thing has been changed in terms of whether or not you can survive as an artist. Uh, you, you do not need a record label. You do not need a publisher. You, all you need to do is go and get your listeners and, and, find, and you know appeal to your listeners and treasure your listeners. And I think that that's a really, really big step because there's often a lot of cheating. Like if there's a middleman, there'd be a lot of cheating or, or confusion with the contracts. And um, so. I think you bring up a really good point about how much words really do matter in their connotations and their definitions and things like that. And I'm wondering, because philanthropy does kind of seem inaccessible to a lot of people, what word you, would you use instead? I like the word crowdfunding. Unfortunately, it's not uh, widely known. I mean, I think it's known for cyber literate people. It's widely known. But there's uh, there's a whole nother division of people that don't use the Internet that much. And they wouldn't even know the word crowdfunding, nor would they trust putting their credit card or anything on, on online. But I, I think crowdfunding, I mean, you could call, I don't know, social sharing, maybe. I don't know, but some sort of share. You're sharing. Yeah. You, you know, there, there's, there, I have this thing where like, like wealth versus prosperity. Oh, that's a good idea. And prosperity, when, when you're prosperous, there's so much, there's so much around you and you just want to share and share and share. It's like if you had an, a crop of apples and there's just so many apples and you're so prosperous, you're like, 
begging people to take your apples because they're going to go bad. It's like, here, apples, apples, apples. But with wealth, <laughs> it's a very, it's a very uh, selfish, like um, every man for himself, which I think is true to a certain degree. But after a while, you gotta, you gotta share, or your whole world is is just not going to be good. That's a really good way of looking at it. And it brings to mind for me, there's a couple of academics named Robert Payton and Michael Moody, and they describe this definition of philanthropy in particular as voluntary action for the public good. And after working in the field and being involved in different ways, would you define philanthropy similarly? I would, but I would also add at the end of the sentence that people have to know what is meant by public good. Like I said, there's people that go through life thinking everything's fine. Or, or So I think that, uh, yes, uh, voluntary action. And also, I think the volunteering has to be effective to, to, to just sort of go and help out or something. It, you really have to uh, dig your teeth in, I think, to volunteerism. I, I know I, I uh, before COVID, I volunteered at the food pantry. We weren't allowed to volunteer during COVID at, at the food pantry, so I haven't gone back yet. But uh, I remember the man who runs that food pantry says that volunteerism sort of has an arc to it. At first, the volunteer is very excited and very engaged, and then they start starts to wear off. And I thought that was kind of interesting. So I think if you're a volunteer and you can see the progress that you're making, that you're helping, if, if there's some way to have a, a progress shown to the volunteer that they would still be, you know, invigorated. Transparency in organizations is one of the primary reasons people decide to give to them. When we're able to show our volunteers the impact that their support of our organization is having, that allows them to feel like they are a part of something bigger than themselves. What drives you to volunteer? Um, I think I, I really, to, for me to volunteer, there has to be a cause that really needs help and that I can see that. And when you're, what I experienced with the Flying Song Garden is that when you're, it started during Hurricane Irene in 2011. And even though we weren't affected by it in this area, the nearby area was, and you could just feel it in the air. You could feel the tension and the, and the tragedy. And that's the first time I ever saw human beings really get together uh, immediately. Like no question, like, like there was no fight, picking, fighting, bickering or anything. And it's like, oh my gosh, help, we got to do this. So because that was so close to home and I, I saw like buildings had actually moved across the street, like they were pushed across the street and vehicles were floating down the road. Uh, this was just videos that I'd seen uh, of and this and these are just, you know, 30 miles from here. So what I, I, I couldn't believe those pictures. So that the fact that it was so severe, really, I, I really wanted to jump in and help. And so I got a, I, I don't know anything about building or hammering or anything like that. So I got a group of my group of musician friends and I sent out an email to the mayors of these towns just out of the blue, each mayor, do you, would you like musicians to come down and give a concert in your town? And they all said yes, they loved it. And we went down there to their little parks and gave the concerts and it was, they, people loved it, it was so successful people came up to me and told me, they said, we feel like we've been forgotten by FEMA and by the authorities. And here you are, you know, it was like three months after and FEMA had left already, you know, we feel like you're still thinking about us. And also there was a lot of social networking going on because their usual social places, like say the post office or the supermarkets were shut down. They had no way to like, you know, how you meet someone in a post office and say, oh, hey, how are you doing? And can you help me or whatever? 
this concert acted as a social place. And I heard people making plans to help each other fix their porches or can I borrow your backhoe or whatever. And I, that I just thought was so great. What you bring up too is this really poignant point about community and I'm curious what your thoughts are on this. In a lot of fundraising, there's a lot of focus on being donor-centric and community-centric. And there's, you know, differing opinions on how we use language to get people engaged with different nonprofit missions. And lately, a a new concept that I've been hearing about is this idea of mission-centric fundraising. So it would focus on both being donor and community-centric in the sense of inviting people to be a part of the mission and building community that way so that it's more like an even keel instead of focusing a little bit almost too much on external funders and things like that. What are your thoughts on that? Community, it might be an overused word. And also, I think communities are not that common anymore. People are moving all the time. Unless you're out in a rural area, well, I don't know much about the about New York City right now, but I, I think there are people who feel that they should be served rather than they serve. Mm. And so that when you say, hey, do you want to help us at the community garden? Like, oh, no, I, I just get my vegetables at the supermarket. You know, they don't they don't get it. So I think um, I think that your community is is if you're going to stay in one place, you want to care for your community. So I I, I don't know. I know it's like I live in a town where people have been they have owned houses for like 20 and 30 years. So they're very invested in their community mm-hmm. and the and it's a, a very quiet place. And the people watch they're on guard all the time. If there's like a strange vehicle, you know, they they come out and, you know, look at it and everything. <laughs> so I, I, I do think it has to do with if you're going to stay in one place. That's a good point. And I. I have to wonder, maybe something that we should talk about more often is the difference between nonprofit mission work or NGO work in a rural community versus a more urban population. Because it seems like there would be a lot of differences there that might go over the heads of people that don't currently live in the rural community or, you know, even people that are from more urban Mm -hmm. settings. We might be missing some key context there. Oh, totally. Um, I lived in New York City as a teenager, and then I moved upstate New York, which is farming mostly, and it was like uh, night and day. Uh, It seems like the less money that there is, the more people will share and help each other. Mm -hmm. And the more money there is, the people will use their money instead of having to do something. Like, they'll just spend the money instead of making the effort. And I'm not trying to put down people with money. It happens to me, too. If I have extra money, I'd rather just pay this or pay that than have to actually go and do X. So I think, well, the rural communities in the United States, of course, started out, if you're talking about the uh, European influences, Mm -hmm. they came here and lived in the wildernesses and they had to help each other or they would die. And they, uh, they, there was very few doctors, maybe their farms were miles apart. So and so they had the church and the church was the center of the community and had the dances and the dinners and the church and the weddings and everything at the at the church. And uh, they didn't move because they had farms. They wouldn't go anywhere. You bring up a really another really interesting point of, of, you know, this concept of time and treasure. And the other thing that people give is talent. And 
it does really matter what you have the most of at the time when you're asked to make a gift or you're asked to make a contribution. And I, I tend to be of the opinion that giving time is a lot more intensive than, you know, being able to give treasure, which is probably why a lot of people do it or they make that choice. And I'm wondering, have you ever, with the Flying Song Garden, do you find that you receive more gifts of time or more gifts of treasure or talent? Talent and all, all of them. I've had people donate money and uh, who are not musicians. I have the musicians donate their time and their talent and also their gas money. I've offered to pay their gas money with the donations and they've said no. So yeah, I, I've, well, in that case, and of course those are people, the musicians that are involved are long-term residents of this area. So maybe that's an, along the same lines as mm -hmm. being stable. Uh, one thing that I learned recently is that when a person is in survival mode, they are not sympathetic. They're not in a sympathy state of mind. Mm -hmm. If you, let's say your house burned down and, or you have nothing or something happened where you have nothing. Let's say some of the people who are crossing the borders who have walked miles and miles and all they have is a backpack. They, they're looking for their next food, their next shelter, their next clothing. They're, they're really, the, the, the psychological state is to conserve and you're for yourself. And so I think that you have to be above the survival mode in order to start feeling like you want to help. And when I say survival mode, it does—it just means that you feel comfortable with the amount of food that you have, with the health that you have, with the with the clothing that you have, or the education or whatever. You you feel comfortable enough where you can now start to help somebody. It it brings to mind the you know Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? So you have this pyramid of needs. And if you, all of your base needs are met, then you're able to provide more. And that's when you're functioning from this place of abundance and you're able to pour from a cup that isn't empty. I wonder how that manifests differently based on you know location or different sectors that we're focusing on. I think the easiest example is always going to be human services because we can clearly see the basic needs that aren't being met. But when we get into different subsectors of nonprofits, I think it becomes more of a nebulous question and it, it begs different perspectives, particularly, you know, between health and medicine and arts and humanities or the environment. And I wonder how we're engaging people in a way that makes it feel more like an investment rather than a sacrifice to give. Yeah, it's true. I, I think it depends on your background. I do think that there's a natural biological level of survival where everyone's, you know, everyone's got to be a certain temperature and they got to have water and stuff like that. And I think, for example, if you, a person is raised in, a, in a, a household that's wealthy, they might have trouble with lower uh, standards of living and they might think that's, you know, survival level. But I do think there's a core survive, human survival level. I have noticed that people who are very successful will help you they 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 know they see what you're trying to do and they have extra and they've been there and they're they feel good because they've succeeded at what they they want and they turn around and they they really help you and and you i've been amazed sometimes uh you know like wow you're doing all, all that that is great and uh, that's that's the i think that's a very natural real way of being i think i think greediness is uh I, I personally, I think greediness is connected to addiction because you can never get enough when you're greedy. You can, it keeps just going on and on and on. You can never get enough. But I, I think that if you truly experience success, 
you get excited about it and you want to either explain what you've done or help other people. I wonder how much of that sense of greediness comes from a sense of almost spiritual poverty. Oh yeah. And and I'm glad you mentioned that because I have a, a lot of very strong metaphysical beliefs. Um, uh, personally, I'm Christian, but I'm, I'm open to everybody's ideas. But I, I do feel that I've had experiences in life where money just kind of appears when I've needed it. And I, I something brought that money. It wasn't me. <laughs> so whatever force and whatever force it was, and I would urge people who are trying to be philanthropic to remember that there is a metaphysical side to life. There really, really is, whether you're whatever religion you are or whatever, I feel there's no denying that there's something metaphysical going on. So if you're, you're going to try to raise money for something that's good, you're, I think you're going to get a lot of help metaphysically from that. So, and I think greed would be the not either not being aware of that or the denial of it or, or yeah, you get so sucked into another value system that you um, that you just it just rots you. How would you make a, a spiritually based case for giving back to the community? Well, I think that would depend on your beliefs. Let's say you 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 believe in the Bible. The Bible says you're supposed to help the poor. And or if you are, let's say, a Hindu, I think you're also supposed to not want um opulence you're supposed to live a simple life so i think mm-hmm. i i think that most uh spiritual at least organized spirituality it has some answers to that i think a lot of time in the nonprofit sector we're kind of encouraged to stay away from anything that could potentially alienate any specific group of people but people's personal beliefs and their value systems and their spirituality, it, it all informs how we interact with the world. So it's it's an interesting almost conundrum in some ways. Yes. And I've, yeah, I've actually had experience with that. Um, I don't know if you've heard of Haven of Hope in Fonda, New York is a homeless shelter for women. And she is strongly, strongly Christian. She has a picture of the fish on her website and everything. And when I first saw that, I was like, whoa, don't do that because you're eliminating, you know, that might turn off someone maybe who's Muslim or Jewish, you know, whatever. But her point was, is I, uh, uh, how, many, there's, how many Christians are in the world? I mean, there's millions and millions of Christians in the world. How much money do you need? If I had a one million Christians, give me one dollar. I mean, you can appeal to a sector if you want say, hey, I'm Christian. Are there any Christians out there that would want to donate? You know, you don't have to necessarily appeal to everybody. And I, I, but I, and I do understand what you're saying. My concern is also like, you're gonna, it's gonna be repugnant to someone. And uh, I, I don't know, I think it depends on how much you're, you're really getting that message across and yeah. how much uh, you're grinding it into the viewer. I, I, I think if you're just simply saying, we're a Christian organization and we love you, we'd love your donations and you don't have to carry on about it. So I think it's, it might, that might actually be an important thing to do is to choose your avenue like that. Have you run into that at all with um, like with your uh, fundraising efforts uh, throughout your various projects? Well, I um, my work, my music work is absolutely and completely free of any, anything, <laughs> any beliefs. And I do that on purpose because my goal as a performer is to bring the room together into this beautiful, hazy, dreamlike, place. I want that room to feel like you've totally forgotten about your bills. You've totally forgotten about anybody you're having problems, troubles with. And it's just like an hour of complete beauty. 
And so I never mention politics or any kind of divisionistic thing, anything ever. And many of my songs don't, uh, I don't do revenge songs. I don't do heartbreak songs. I just want, it's just supposed to be a good nurturing together feeling. And that, that follows through in all of the things, all my websites, all my messages and everything. So I completely uh, stay away from that. And it's not, it's not because I'm chicken or anything. It's because I'm trying to create this uh, dreamlike world that everybody in that room will enjoy. Everybody, no matter what. I read uh, one of your reviews on your website and it mentions that your songwriting feels as though it comes from another time. And I'm wondering for, you know, our listeners that have never listened to your music, how would you describe your songwriting process, your style, and how much is inspired by, you know, folklore in various ways? Well, I absolutely, I absolutely love the forest. And I love nature. So it's, it's really tied into that. And I'm also kind of fascinated with relationships. Uh, I think they help. It helps to really look at your relationships. I I also really feel connected to early American life for some reason in terms like 1700s, 1600s. I, uh, my family came over from Ireland in the 1600s, so I don't know if that has anything to do with it. But I've it's always appealed to me with sort of like that homesteading settler thing. There's an old adage, and it's been said in many different times, many different ways. One of the most popular is you can't pour from an empty cup, right? And something I've been personally reflecting on lately is this idea that philanthropy starts at home. And I'm wondering how and if that's something that rings true to you. And if so, how does that show up for you? I think philanthropy will start at home if the home is... Uh, so if you have a highly dysfunctional home, if you have an alcoholic in the home or someone who's very sick or something that's happening in your home that is overwhelming, no, you're not going to be able to demonstrate. I don't think it's going to be a good beginning for you. And I think that there's a lot, there are homes that are very tumultuous. Um, my home was not, uh, but I, I think that it, it probably would start at home if the home was a, an environment for it. But so then, I mean, that's where you would need. So if you have a tumultuous home, that's where you would need to start in terms of philanthropy, probably to, for the outside sources to come step in. So I think mental illness, mental health, yeah, we need to focus on that a lot. And I think people, a lot of people's actions are from anger or rage or frustration or mental illness. And if you love that person, you might take it personally, and uh, then that causes all kinds of problems in yourself. And when we're out of alignment with ourselves and who we truly are, it it, it doesn't really bode well for anybody. And I wonder what, what changes would you make in the conversation around surrounding mental health in the nonprofit sector or amongst similar organizations? Well, I think it amazes me that people have time to go out and be hostile because I am so pressed for time just to take care of myself. I just to just to uh, make sure that I'm balanced, to make sure I'm exercising, eating right, working well, earning enough money, have the right shelter. It takes all my life to effort to do that. So the people who are out being hostile must not be taking care of themselves. You you, you can't. I mean, you're taking care of their car or their house. I mean, you can't. You're not repairing your house if you're out. You know, trying to chase somebody down and kill them or something. So uh, I think the first place to start, and this is going to sound super corny, is self-care. 
I know it's a cliche at this point, and but self-care is possibly the answer to the world. If you're going to stay at home and take care of yourself and nourish yourself, you can't be out there, you know, trying to shoot somebody or conquer another country mm -hmm. or something like that. So, I, and, I, and I think people are discouraged in the past. People have been discouraged from taking care of themselves because they had to uh, build America. You had to build, we had to, we had to build it or uh, Europeans had to build it. And now we don't have to. All we need to do is maintain it. We don't have to keep building. We have enough skyscrapers. We have enough automobiles. We have enough all this stuff. So we can sit back now and enjoy what we have, but also take care of ourselves. I would also like to say that if in the past, if you weren't anxious and worried and nervous about something, then you were considered a bad person. If you if you were off like if they if you were off taking a bubble bath, no, you got get out of that bubble bath and help us do this because you can't do even though you needed that bubble bath really badly, it's too bad. And uh, oh, are you tired? Too bad. Are you? And that's really what it was. If if you're too, are you, are, you know, are you unhappy? Oh well, keep going. And I, we don't have to, as I said, we don't have to do that anymore. But it was a social, it was a social thing to uh, to give a hundred percent of yourself and and not really think about yourself. I'm glad you brought that up because it it begs the question of, you know, how does activism fit into the concept of philanthropy? What are your thoughts on that? Activism. Uh, for the most part, I'm against activism, except for the fact that if you don't have acti activism, people don't listen. Like, I don't think anybody wants to see a car blown up or windows smashed. But if nobody's listening, if uh, most of the time people try the the regular avenues to get through to the law or to get through to to uh, whoever's in authority. But if they're not listening, you have to. How else are you going to do it? So it, it you know because people say, well, you don't have to blow up that car. Yeah, we do. Nobody's listening, and especially civil rights. It just it just amazes me that has been going on for so long, and there's still no one is listening. And and then they say, oh well, you looted that and you blew up those cars. But what do you think? No one is paying attention. So I think for the most part, I I uh, one thing about activism is that it usually focuses on the problems. It's it, I, like I'll hear activists speaking, and they're only like saying the problems, the problems, the problems. They're not really presenting their idea of a solution. They're just trying to present the problem to the people. And I think that they could take a bigger role by maybe trying to find a solutions. So that, say they're at doing a public speech about the problems, also add in a few solutions. And I feel that way about um, the environment because I hear it all the time, the environment, the environment, global warming. Uh, but I still don't know very many answers to what I'm supposed to do. Yes, I recycle. I try not to drive very much and on and on. But really, is that what else can I do to help this global warming? I think it might come back to explaining how it is an investment to learn more about the problem so that we can develop solutions. In a lot of cases, it kind of seems like there's so much emphasis on getting people to listen that that's still a hill that needs to be climbed prior to any solutions being presented. But there are a lot of organizations that are actively presenting solutions, particularly with climate change. And I think during COVID, when we were all kind of captive audience to George Floyd, that inspired a lot of foundations to prioritize funding for organizations yeah. focused on civil rights and equity. So there are changes. They're just smaller and a little bit more incremental than maybe you or I would like. I think the main thing is to be able to show people that, you know, we need to help other people.
you need to help other people and I, we ourselves sometimes need help when someone listens to this episode of talking good what do you want their main takeaway to be that uh the world can be a joyous place and that we there are answers all over and the minute you take one step to finding answers more answers come and really i think people are desensitized a lot they're desensitized to other human beings desensitized to their health and uh so i i think uh just take one little step forward and and uh keep going what current projects are you working on or hope to work on and how can our listeners connect with you <laughs> well, I'm still, I will, will be doing the Flying Song Garden. And then uh, I, my website is just my name, cosbygibson.com. This summer, I'm uh, doing a bunch of tours. They're mostly my music tours, but we are playing at Haven of Hope, which is the homeless shelter that I was talking about. It's actually a place for women in transition. It's, it's a farmhouse. And people, the women who are ready to make a change, maybe to get their degree or maybe to get a job, they live there for a while and under the guidance of Pat Brooking. And then, so it's really like a retraining place. It's not just like dumping people out into the street. So Haven of Hope, that's July 23rd of 2023. And then also uh, we're just basically touring around. And if anyone's interested in having us play a benefit for them, we do play at events that for nonprofit fundraising, which because there's no natural disaster right now, <laughs> then uh, we, then we do that. I, it, it was funny because I'm almost like, I don't know how much I want to focus on the fact that we only play if there's a natural disaster. I just, it's like, well, you don't have a natural disaster, so we can't play. <laughs> awesome. Well, Cosby, it's always a pleasure to chat with you. And thank you so much for talking some good with me today. Thank you, Britt. You're doing a great job. Thank you for doing this. <laughs> Well, everyone, that's it for this episode of Talking Good. If you enjoyed it as much as we did, be sure to subscribe on your podcast platform of choice and give us a five-star rating. I'm Britt Hotelling, and I'll see you next time. Thank you.